All right, so it's a new week, so that means it's time for you to hear me lavish praise on the highly polished, collectible, and sometimes even glow-in-the-dark Fangoria magazine. Each issue is filled with the best of the best of genre writing, including deep dives on the horror movies you love, looks forward at future classics, and celebrity interviews, and even sometimes some bullshit from Wampler and myself. These stunning issues tend to sell out, so why not sign up for a year subscription and make sure you don't miss out? To do so, head over to Fangoria.com and sign up for an annual subscription. And if you do, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST at checkout for 25% off your subscription. That's K-I-N-G-C-A-S-T at checkout. Oi, in all of that said, on with the show, governor. Hi. My name is Stephen King. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We're joined today by a guest who uh, who's actually um, been on the show, kind of. Once before we did a we did a live event uh, last year during the the grips of quarantine where we watched um, Dark Half with an audience online. She was our guest on that show. That was a very fun event. You know her work from a number of different places: Fangoria Magazine, the AV Club, the Playlist, Scream Magazine, Birth Movies, Death when it was still in operation, Dread Central. Uh, she's been all over. Uh, and one of the key voices in uh, the horror writing community these days. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Miss Anya Stanley. Anya, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me. And thank you for the very kind introduction. Far kinder of than I would ever do for myself. We're excited to talk to you again uh, after the dark half screening. What did you think about that dark half screening? Were you into that or not? I, w- I was into it. It was fun. It was um. There seemed to be kind of some delay issues with with just trying to get everybody synced up and and the chat. It was tough to pay attention to the movie and keep up with the chat at the same time. I agree. It was wasn't that the one where there was like somebody purporting to be like a twelve year old girl or something in there? Yes. Oh yeah. Do you remember God, that? I forgot about that. Fuck yeah. That was it, weird, right? Yeah. That was yeah, so and it's odd. just like, well, one, if you're telling the truth, it's a little odd that you're in this <laughs> the random like horror chat room with a bunch of like weirdos like us, and uh, um, and two, it very clearly wasn't true. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was very clearly like somebody pretending to be a twelve year old girl for some reason, and it was uh, probably someone trying to do pranks and or hijinks is what I think. Right, not doing a very good job of it. But that said, if there are any 12 year old male or female listening to the show, apologies for all the curses. Yeah, we don't have an age restriction on there or anything. We could be fucking feeding this material to like elementary schoolers. We don't know. Which yeah. is a perfect segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get to the title that you're here to talk to us about today, which is Rage, um, let's talk about your Stephen King origin story. So I was. We last. I was. I was very young, and uh, I want to say seven, eight, nine years. No, no, I was older than that. Maybe nine, nine or ten. Mm-hmm. And um, my mom had this habit of, if I made the mistake of going to her during the summer and saying I'm bored, she would quickly find something for me to do. And it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a cutesy, fun Montessori learning kind of thing. It was. It was like 
you're going to peel potatoes so we can make fries for lunch. You're going to you're going to do housework <laughs> stuff like that. And one summer, I told her I was bored, and she handed me uh, a copy of Gone with the Wind. She just slapped it on my lap. I was in the, like the fifth grade. And um, <laughs> and she's like, I'll see you in September. And that was it. And I, I did read the book and I got really into it. And I started reading at higher levels from, from that point on. And um, rather than see it as a punishment, I got really into reading just like from the grown up section of the library. And uh, one day I couldn't go to the library and I was bored and I knew better than to ask my mom. I looked around the house and there was a copy of Skeleton Crew sitting on her bookshelf. I was like, huh, it's got a little skeleton on it. That looks neat. I like weird stuff. What's mm-hmm. this about? And I pop it open and uh, the, I just flip to a random page and it's survivor type. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so a uh, young, you know, adolescent Anya reads this story about this guy who gets uh, shipwrecked on an island and, and with, with a bunch of, bunch of heroin and proceeds to amputate his limbs and, and, you know, have all kinds of fun stuff that every 10 year old should read, you know? Auto-cannibalism is huge with middle school. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. It was, it was off to the races after that. I, I read every King book that she had in the house and uh, started to get really, really into uh, his work. So was she a horror fan? Like, did she have a lot of she King was. on hand? She had a lot of King on hand. She, was, she read uh, The Stand uh, when it came out. She, you know, like it, from, from when she was in high school. Uh, she right. started reading King. And so, yeah, that that was definitely passed down to me. You know, what's really interesting is we hear so many stories about how people, you know, especially people in our generation grew up with their parents reading King. And I'd say like eight out of 10, if not nine out of 10, it's always the mom. It's it's very rarely the dad who was reading King. Um, and that's the that's what was true in my household. My mom was the Stephen King reader. It's interesting. It's, it's a very interesting thing that I never would have put together, you know, until we started this podcast and we keep asking people, you know, how they uh, came to the author. I had never really thought about that until you mentioned it. Now I'm like, where was this generation's king dads? <laughs> you know, there there seems to be a number of them out there now because we hear a lot from right. from dads who are either listening to the show. There's a couple of guys that are like listen to this show with their kids, which I imagine is very awkward sometimes. <laughs> um, Especially that Mallory Omara Needful Things episode that the, just the, just the, the episode we needn't discuss. <laughs> But um, that does seem more prevalent now than it was in my generation. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think uh, Kate Siegel had a Stephen King dad, right? She was talking about how he would always have the uh, had like a big library of King stuff. I suppose that's true. Yeah, but but yeah, that's the only one I can really remember of you know people specifically saying one parent over another was introducing them to King. Mm-hmm. Anya, were you a, a single parent household? No, I had both parents, and my my dad was also um, a horror fan. But he was he was the one who introduced me to horror movies. He was the mm. one who uh, got me into watching, uh, you know, Joe Bob Briggs on on Saturday nights, and he would take me to the video store and and let me pick out you know pretty much whatever I wanted, which I usually did just based on the the VHS cover art alone. Yeah, of course. Um, and, but he was the one who would let me go into the horror section and wouldn't really make a fuss about it. Do you remember the first King movie you saw? Oh, maybe. It had to be it. It was it was the the, um, the miniseries. The miniseries, yeah. yeah. And I saw that before I should have, and that it did give <laughs> me nightmares. And uh, I didn't like clowns for a really long time. They don't bother me now, but uh, yeah, it was it was it was influential. I know that you are 
fairly well known for being very public. You're a mom yourself and very public in how you're bringing horror to your kids. Right. So I love that stuff. Like, you know, my nephews, I'm the movie uncle to them and I love introducing them to stuff, you know, but I love reading like Drew McQueenie's film nerd 2.0. I'm i I'm kind of obsessed with the whole concept of passing an appreciation of art or specific genre onto the next generation. You have like a, a teenager and a young, young kid now, right? Yes, I have a 13-year-old and a seven, seven-year-old. And <laughs> he's not listening, don't worry. I know, it's terrible. I always I always think he's a year older than he is. He's seven, he's definitely seven. Um, the older one had had shown uh, an interest in horror on his own and I just kind of fomented that a little bit more. But yeah, he does like makeups and stuff, right? He does, he does effects life. makeups. He's really into that the first time that I figured out what, what was going on was he was watching one of the Friday the 13th movies and he kept um, he kept going back over and over again on this one scene. The, the one where that uh, the guy's eye gets popped out. Uh, right. I think it's the, maybe the second one. I think it's the second the, one. The 3D one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was 3D. Yeah. So, yeah. Part three and 3D, yeah. That's, that's with the scene. spear gun, right? Yes, that's also with the spear gun. And yeah. he, um, yeah, the eye kept popping out and he kept watching this over and over and over again. And I'm like, what is this a red flag? You know, should I be, <laughs> should I intervene? You know? Um, but then he finally turns around and he's like, Oh, I, th- I think I figured out how they did it. I think they put it on like something, some kind of clear string. You can kind of see it right here in the corner. He was really into, mm-hmm. you know, pulling back the curtain and figuring out the illusion behind the, um, the trick behind the illusion. Yeah. That was totally me as a kid. Like, I, I love that stuff. It's why I read Fangoria. It's why I like read monster makeup books and shit. I, I was never good at executing my own, but like, I love that behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, he's so into it. He does read Fangoria and he does. We appreciate how uh, the the magazine often includes uh, makeup tutorials and stuff like that. Right. Um, and, and they're also explained well enough that if he doesn't have, you know, a $300 air compressor, he can still, you know, figure out ways to to get a similar effect. It's a pretty cool thing to see. Now, the youngest, he is not so much a horror fan. He, he gets spooked very, very easily. So he went, the horror that he does like is creature features. Anything that's closer to sci-fi, he's very mm-hmm. into that. If you have uh, like a William Girdler movie, or if you have, uh, I don't know, Godzilla, he likes Godzilla. That's the closest thing he'll get towards actual horror. And he, th- he says the scariest movie he's ever seen was Night of the Living Dead. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah no, pro- probably not a horror future for, for that one. Right, right. But the, the stuff he does like, I'll encourage it. But uh, yeah, I try to force it. I'm curious well, with the older child. Shane. Shane. Yeah, I didn't. I realized I didn't know his name. And then I was like, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't ask his name on the air. And then a lot just went through my head right then. A lot of gears, <laughs> lot of gears turning. That's that grinding noise you just heard. With Shane, um, have you ever overstepped in showing him something where... You're like, I think this will be all right for him. And it just like fucked him up. No. And I've held back on certain movies because of that specifically. Um, He's been wanting to see Hellraiser. And I'm Mm. like, okay, well, you know, like I'm fine with the gore and the violence, but there are themes in it that I feel like might be kind of weird for someone of his age right now. Um, It's pretty sexual. it's pretty sexual, and it, it, there's there's kind of this this overlap of of sex and violence and and pain and pleasure, and I'm, I'm not sure if he's ready to really tackle it yet. I, I try to err on the side of caution. I don't show him French extreme films, even though the gore would you know the <laughs> gore would be great for for his effects work. I haven't shown. We're going to watch those. Inside tonight, guys. 
Well, recently he had been asking to watch uh, the Green Inferno, and so I'm oh, like, oh, no. do I do I do it or do I not do it? You know, no. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that one. I I, I need some heavy thought, some heavy. He's sober he's, he's really wanting to watch a Serbian film. What I, about you know Campbell what? Holocaust? <laughs> right, right. So I figured, you know, like if if we're gonna do that, if you're gonna do the Green Inferno, you should probably do the ones that influenced it first. Right. You know, you should probably do some of the older uh, Italian stuff and and. I, I think he'd be bored by it until he got to the gore. I'm not even sure right. if he'd like it. Yeah, no, you that's get probably it. right. Go to the zombie like direction. Yeah. That's the the fun stuff. Like I, I I have trouble with Cannibal Holocaust still, even with the because uh, you have that version you can watch without the animal killing, mm-hmm. uh, and it's still rough for me even without that. Yeah. But like, you know, there, there's nothing more disturbing to me than that than that uncut thing. I remember seeing that at the Alamo Draft House. I'm like, oh, everybody's always talked about this. I've never seen it, and I saw the 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 main the regular cut with like them killing the turtle and shit, and it's uh, pretty fucked up. I just <laughs> straight up won't watch that one. I don't I don't like animal death at all. Yeah, yeah. It's like I respect its place. I'm not telling anyone else not to watch it, but I just know instinctively that's just not. Yeah. That's just not, not going to be me. one. I'm for not, not going to rewatch it. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a one and done for me personally. But uh, but I do like the you know this you know kind of framing a safe way to share horror and the way that some children can become obsessed with with mm-hmm. horror in a healthy way. Um, because uh, you know obviously the title we're going to talk about, we are going to be covering some children who in a not quite healthy way absorbed some King material, uh, which led to you know King mm-hmm. himself pulling this title. Obviously, it always boils down to the individual, and uh, you know, I think King himself, even though he pulled the pulled rage, you know, in the wake of of a, a few school sh- shootings where the book was either directly or indirectly kind of tied to the the shooter uh, or the gunman. He, even he is like saying, "I don't believe the story fiction caused that to happen," but you know, he's like. I think. How do you put it, Scott? You read. You re- recently reread the guns, which I haven't read in a while. But that was well, his essay on his on the gun his position is yeah. right. His position is that he pulled it because he feared it might be an accelerant, right? Not that it was the cause, which is why he also says he doesn't feel obligated to apologize for it. These were already broken kids. These yeah. were already like young men who were damaged in in some very serious way and we're going down a path but my recollection of the story before rereading guns today was that this had happened once and he uh mm. had the book pulled it's it actually happened three times doing it after one time would seem almost an overreaction to me right. you know but if i were him and this shit happened three times you know in a relatively short period of time i'd probably be it was over about I, 10 years yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, still a relatively short period of time. I, I think that I would also be feel called to action over that. Right. Well, there's, I mean, some of it though, I mean, listen, he pulled it after one, well, shit, I think there's four times the way I'm looking at now, the one that did it, like it was a direct thing where the guy was just like, I have a copy of this book and, and yes, it, insp- it obviously inspired him to do it. Uh, there mm-hmm. are other times where it was kind of like the Damien Eccles West mm-hmm. Memphis three thing where it's like something happened. Then they like found a copy of the Bachman books in their room or something. And so they're assuming that it had something to do with it. But um, I think there's been a couple of those shooters either said directly that they were inspired by rage mm-hmm. or not. And for people who maybe don't know the the story um, and you'd be totally excused for not knowing it because this is the one that's harder to find than, than most of other King stuff because he pulled it. It's about a, 
um, kind of a, a a lone messed up kid who goes into his uh, classroom, kills his teacher, and holds the class hostage while there's a standoff, you know, with the police outside. And it becomes a little bit Lord of the Flies ish, you know, where oh, yeah. like little clicks start to form in in the classroom, and you know, people he starts like getting people on his side, and he's doing you know thinking he's doing the right thing, and there's you know it, it's a very entertaining read. It's you know obviously a very early King story, just from a writing standpoint, it's not as focused as he would become. It's not one of his best written stories, but it's a very early indicator of just how great he is at writing characters. And um, for whatever reason, the lead character in this very much appeals to certain troubled children who, you know, the same people that would be influenced by a catcher in the rye, for instance, you know, and be drawn to that character. So, so yeah, that is, that is the story. So Anya, why are we talking about rage today? This was a pitch you brought to us and, We've been kind of looking for a reason to do an episode on this, but it sounds like you have things you want to say about it. I'm curious what they are. You know, I I wanted to give myself an excuse to revisit it, first of all. I thought it'd be really interesting and relevant, you know, because we're, unfortunately, we're still, we're still, we're still here, you know, we're still, as soon as things started opening up again, the shooting started in America and uh, it's, it's, it's ingrained in our DNA at this point. Isn't it so fucked up that like the second thing started opening back up again, it was like, hell yeah, it's fucking mass shooting season again. And like, like every fucking day there was a, 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 not this week, maybe the week before, maybe it was a week before that time is strange now, but it was like, you would hear about a shooting one night and then wake up and there'd be another shooting in the morning. And you're like, wait, is this the same? Oh no, this is a different one. This is a different one. Yeah. You know, it's a plague. It's a Mm -hmm. full on fucking plague. And I just find it like really, really insidious that it's making a comeback after all the shit we've been through. Like Mm -hmm. there, no Hakuna Matata lessons were learned (laughs) during quarantine. It seems like on so many levels. Yeah. yeah, There's the mask shit. There's Mm -hmm. the gun shit. There's the vaccine shit. The vaccine shit. Yeah. It strikes me that we are living in a a particularly dumb period in this country's history. And it's just very frustrating to watch. Yeah. It it feels like um, America is no longer no longer able to hide its its Jekyll and Hyde um, tendencies uh, behind, Mm -hmm. you know, a Bible and a smile. You got to. It's exposed now. We we can see that a, a large, large segment of the population has no sense of civic duty, has no sense of concern for their fellow citizens. They, mm-hmm. they, it's, it's, I got mine, you better get yours, but I'm going to try my hardest to keep you from getting yours too. Oh, yeah. No, the second that it became apparent that masks are more about protecting other people than protecting yourself, mm-hmm. it was over for us, you know, just really a, a, as, as a nation. Because uh, you're right, people are selfish. They don't give a fuck about anybody but themselves. So you know, it just made it all that e- easier for the anti-maskers to be like, well, fuck you. I don't care about you. And, and this is uncomfortable for me or I don't like it. So, so uh, exactly. I'm not going to do it. Long ago, we had decided apparently that um, the, the blood of Americans and the blood of even American children, even little blue eyed white American children seem to be <laughs> a, a fair price to pay right. for these abstract freedoms. And it's, it's ridiculous. And it, this book shouldn't be relevant but it, right. it unfortunately is. Right. When was the first time you read it? You know, like, did you read this early on in your King uh, no, reading? I, or? I only learned about it when I was, I think, in my 20s. And uh, I have found a copy of it at a thrift store. This, this dog-eared paperback copy that was missing the introduction. Um, is this the yeah. Bachman books? 
this was the Bachman books. Right. I read it and I, I was like, why have I never heard of this, you know, before? And I, I, I did some, some Googling and, and figured out why quickly. And, and it really struck me the first time I read it. I was, I was very into it. And I, I, I loved how it, it went from Catcher in the Rye to The Breakfast Club to Lord of the Flies. And mm. uh, yeah, yeah, it really stuck with me. And, and my feelings have largely remained the same over it when I, when I revisited it this, this time around. I, I listened to the audiobook uh, this time Ooh. around. Interesting. Who read it? Ah, oh, I can't remember his name. No, it's on YouTube too. Uh, oh, right on. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember his name, but uh, he did it. He did a good job, even with the women's yeah. voices. No, I uh, yeah, I, I read it like in the the Bachman books as well. And and listen, in the more recent Bachman books, it's pulled. So there's four stories instead of five in there now. Hmm. You can still find the older copies. There's a paperback and a hardback that you can still find the Rage story. And I, I've read that they're getting kind of expensive now, though. They're like 30, 40 to 60 bucks now, but it's still out there. Or you can just YouTube it up for free and audiobook it mm-hmm. you, if you're really curious. It's definitely, for King fans, it's definitely worth reading any of the early Bachman stuff is because it's all stuff he was writing before he got famous or right when he got famous. So it's, you know, just fascinating from a a King fan perspective of like seeing him find his voice as he's, as he's writing. Right. You can, you can definitely tell where, uh, where he, he figured out that he needed to make some improvements and make some changes. And, and right. yeah, yeah, it's very apparent in this one. And, and I think um, road work as well, which isn't my favorite of, uh, of them is probably mm-hmm. my least favorite actually. Uh, but like running man's got that, got a great premise and you know, it's a little bit clunky in the writing style, but then like the long walk is just, everything that you love about King just clicking into place right, right there. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's, it's very fascinating. It, all that stuff's very interesting. And, and uh, you know, and this one, even though it's, you know, it's a, a loaded title to talk about, you know, it's again, it's got a lot of really interesting character work and a lot of gray area that it plays with by not completely villainizing the, the lead. And you understand where he's coming from, from, you know, this outcast abusive background and, you know, it doesn't mean that you can condone what he did or whatnot, but it's not as just simple as, you know, the troubled weird kid that nobody likes, you know? And, you know, I, there is something really interesting about how this classroom watched him commit a murder in front of him just through a cult of personality. He's able to sway some to his side, you know, during this whole thing. It, it's a really, you know, kind of fascinating character study. Right. And structurally, it's been done before. You know, you put people in a room, you close the door and you apply pressure, you know, to see what comes of it and what people are made of. And right. it's been it's been utilized from from, you know, 12 Angry Men to Devil to the taking of Pella <laughs> 1, 2, 3, you know, to every right. zo- zombie and siege action movie, you know, ever made. It, it was in Rio Bravo. They did that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's pretty ballsy of, of King to apply that template to this. The thing that we have to address for sure is kind of. We we touched on it, but we need to address, I think, in detail if we can, you know, our thoughts on people imitating art and how how much responsibility an artist has, and uh, as we said, the societal responsibility. Should an artist be totally free to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, you know, or is there something to framing your art in a way to try to not inspire stuff like this. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it, it it's not an easy yes or no question here. It's got, to me, it's just got to be a case by case basis because mm-hmm. part of the reason why people love genre in particular horror is because it gives them an outlet to explore and navigate their own thoughts on darker material and, mm-hmm. you know, in a safe way. And 
because this goes back to like you know if you remember like Ebert and and uh, you know Siskel and Ebert and and all the critics of the '80s were very hard on the Friday the Thirteenth movies because they thought that they were irresponsible and they didn't understand that that was a fun escapism you know to let people confront fear you know certain fears whether it was gross or not you know that was a safe way for them to alleviate some of their own psychological uh, issues right. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is other than my instinct is that it's not an author or a filmmaker's responsibility to make sure that, you know, somebody who's very troubled um, doesn't take a wrong message away from their art. What do you think, Anya? As a side note, interestingly enough, with the Friday the 13th thing, the, some of those critics, uh, one of them in particular, uh, despite all of his talk about uh, irresponsibility, he ended up doxing uh, Betsy Palmer in his review. Do you remember this? This was no. either was it was it Ebert or was it uh, Siskel? It was it was one of them. Right, um, I think it was Siskel, uh, but but I, I don't know for sure. I'm going to say that with authority, as if I know though. It was definitely <laughs> Siskel. I don't know the story at all. What is it? So he wrote his review of, of Friday the Thirteenth, and he talked about how irresponsible it was, you know, just as you were saying, and how how you know this kind of violence is is unacceptable. And he said, if you agree, then you should write to this actress who was in the movie. I can't believe she would stoop so low to be in this movie. You should write to her. Here's her address, and it was and, and this was published. It was published. Mm, that's and fucking so, crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. And and so he seemed to have no problem with with potentially putting her in danger you know she someone could have you know been angry enough to take their their displeasure out on her out on right. this woman who just her crime was being in a movie and wearing a sweater <laughs> I totally agree. awesome sweater it, it sounds sweater. more like a siskel move than an ebert move <laughs> but it, ebert, know, ebert would just be talking about her boobs probably though yeah well ebert was very horny that's the thing he was a boob man yeah very 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 admittedly a boob man but as for the debate about blaming media or entertainment for violent crimes. Where do you stand on that, Anya? I think that, that you know, as ballsy as it was of King to to apply that template to to school shootings, um, that ballsy move, you know, did have its repercussions. There was a copycat crime where there was, there's a little bit of wiggle room when you have that, that child's play. What was that child's play one with the, there was a child who killed another child. This this happened adjacent to the video nasties uh, craze, uh, right. which is its own entire discussion. This, this child had killed another child. And in this child's stepfather's, either his father or his stepfather's house, they found a copy, a VHS copy of, it was either Child's Play 2 or Child's Play 3. I can't remember which. And so there is a scene in one of those movies where uh, Chucky leads another child away and tries to kill him. It had to be Child's Play 3 then. That's what I'm thinking of. And so they tried to blame this crime, this boy's crime, on the hypothetical idea that he might have caught this movie. Because his dad claimed that he never showed it to him. Um, That this boy might have caught this movie and been influenced by it. You have wiggle room when there's something like that. You know, like if Mm -hmm. I think after after Columbine, they found like Marilyn Manson CDs in, in the, the shooter's locker or something like that. And then there was a whole craze about that. But when someone directly cites your work as an influence uh, or an accelerant for them, I, I can see how he would feel partly responsible for the blood that, that was shed. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't blame him for that. Although I do strongly feel that, as you said, it's escapism, it's art, and it's a safe exploration of these dark things in a way that 
drama can't do in a way that Westerns can't do or even comedy can't do. Right. And so it can become unsafe when someone, you know, uses it as a conduit for, for their own frustrations and their own violence. Um, but there are many, 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 many things in this world that could potentially do that for people. Right. I think yeah. where I draw the line is the difference between what is something that is clearly meant to be entertainment. And you might not like that kind of entertainment, but mm-hmm. you know, entertainment or the intention of entertainment when you see it, which would be, right. you know, a movie you can go see in a theater versus if we're talking about media, then there's a discussion that we had about the irresponsibility of, say, uh, a network like Fox News, where, right. you know, right now you've got Tucker Carlson on there, like warning people away from the vaccine and shit. Um, After he got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it seems deeply irresponsible to me and like somebody should be doing something about that. But I don't know. I don't know how you can. Because that, at the very least, I know, I understand that Tucker Carlson is like, you know, a professional opinion haver. A lot of that opinion is written by his staff of writers, but right. he is essentially a, a talking head on a show. That in and of itself could be considered its own form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. So that kind of and that's been their the defense issue. on it, but but that's but that's not isn't anybody you know clearly they're they're using that as like some sort of legal defense. But anybody with half a brain knows that it's a different thing to be on a news network. Sure. reading news and proclaiming to be presented reading facts as truth. Yeah. To then versus somebody writing a clearly fictional story. Exactly. Um, but at um, least in my opinion, I think that's a very, a very cut and dry, easy distinction, but you're right. And that, you know, like Alex Jones's defense and his divorce court or whatever was that he was an entertainer and that he was mm-hmm. just playing a character to me that it's a very clearly different thing than a book or a movie or a video game. Oh, for sure. For sure. And and that's what I was, you know, saying. These these are two different things, but those are the the things I think about when I think about this sort of stuff. Mm. The only time I've ever like I just don't believe that like to use the example of the uh, the couple that went on a killing spree after seeing Natural Born Killers. Mm. I just don't believe that if they hadn't just if they just hadn't seen that movie, they wouldn't have done something similar. You have to be a certain kind of person probably with some of your own trauma that you're dealing with mm-hmm. to pick up a gun and decide to just go out and mindlessly shoot people. Um, I don't think a movie does that to you. I don't think a, a or a Marilyn Manson album or fucking, you know, or video Doom. game. Yeah. Right. I don't believe that, but I will say this was something I spent a lot of time thinking about before Joker came out. There was a draft of the script that made its way around. Had a slightly different ending. Some more scenes with the uh, the character that Zazie Beetz ultimately played in the movie, and it felt like on paper. In reading that, I felt like it was crossing a line. It felt like an incitement. It didn't feel that way in practice when I actually saw it, and they had changed a number of things that sort of smoothed off that particular edge to the whole thing. But I remember reading the script and being like, this is fucking, I can't believe they're going to shoot this. How long is it going to take? Six hours before someone comes back to the theater with a gun and just starts shooting people to make a Mm -hmm. point like the Joker did? That's how that screenplay was crafted. Or it was in my opinion. And apparently the opinion of a lot of other people. And then the movie comes out. Of course, nothing like that happens. And then people were like jeering at, you know, uh, anyone who mentioned this you know, in, in writing or on social media that they they were conflicted about the script they had read. First of all, it's a good lesson in not judging a movie before you've seen it. 
And secondly, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, doesn't this undermine my entire position on how I feel about these things? Hmm. Like if they had actually shot that version of Joker and there had been a shooting, would that derail my whole opinion on this? And I really don't know the answer to that. I just don't. I'm wondering if y'all have ever seen a movie or something where you felt like it just crossed a line. Not that you would ever tell anyone not to watch it, maybe, but you felt like oh, yeah. this is irresponsible. I have, yes. for sure. There's a movie called Murder Set Pieces that I saw at uh, AFM. And it was in that kind of found footage, torture, porny. You're, there's another movie called Poughkeepsie Tapes, which is kind of a similar mm-hmm. thing. Thing, um, yeah, I've and, seen that and one. one bo- both movies are fucking terrible. Um, yeah. Apologies if you if you like if you like either one of those on you, but but um, like murder set pieces in particular was, and I'll tell you why I felt it was irresponsible. It wasn't because of an inspiration thing, but there's a it, it's a it's like a voyeuristic thing where a killer goes around and he sets up a camera and then records him like torture porn style murdering people like as he's breaking into their homes at night. And there's this one section where. He does that and he kills like, you know, a parent or something and, or, you know, an adult. And then he, we hear a baby crying and like there in the corner is a, like a toddler standing up in his thing, just watching this bloody dude, like murder this person in front of him. And and the toddlers obviously fucking does have no clue what's going on is seeing something horrifically violent is even if it's made up or whatever, but like it, why I think is irresponsible is because of, them the way they shot it and that kid is clearly traumatized by what he's seeing and you know we're talking like a two-year-old or one and a half year old right he doesn't have any way to process what what he's watching and like so so even though it isn't i feel irresponsible for you know to go out there it's just a terrible movie that indulges in the shock value of of uh, of kills without you know doing any of the <laughs> the uh, you know the hard work like character building and tension mounting and and all that stuff um uh you know just for what they did to that young boy who didn't really have a choice of being there and, and didn't have a choice of mm-hmm. you know what what they what they what he was seeing like that that like legitimately infuriated me when I saw it like it, it it's unconscionable because there's no there there was no thing where it's like oh well obviously the way they the angle was he was never seeing anything you know because that reminds me of like um in the witch robert um eggers that's right right Mm -hmm. the witch Mm -hmm. um you know he i remember him describing the the scene where the boy comes back after being you know seduced by the witch and how he had to like figure out a clever way to get him to act orgasmically without him you know telling him you know to (laughs) <laughs> to, to, to act that way, you know, obviously for obvious reasons. And, um, you know, I think his solution was like react in the way, cause he was a big uh, soccer fan. He was like, react in the way that you would react if your, your team, you know, won the, whatever I'm, I'm a terrible sports person, but what, what won, whatever the, the equivalent of the super bowl or the world uh, cup. is uh, the world cup. And so it's like, <laughs> you know, so like that way, the point is you like that way he was fe- being very cautious uh, about treating his actor, his young actor with respect and not, you know, putting him in a weird position, but there's nothing like that in, in murder set pieces. It, it's, it was about, you know, there's no angle that this was cut to, or there's no way that this obviously terrified child watching this brutal murder, you know, quote unquote murder happen in front of him could, could process that in any way where he understood that it was pretend or right. whatnot. So it's, that that is the thing that jumps to mind where I'm just like, that is pure responsibility. And that, that all has to do in the execution. How about you Anya? 
Uh, yeah, recently it, it wasn't fiction. It was a documentary uh, about Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, the, the new oh, one that yep. came on Netflix. <laughs> I, I felt yep. that that was actually pretty irresponsible. And I say this as a true crime fan, as someone who watched like from from the days of Unsolved Mysteries to now. Uh, I've right. been very into true crime, and that that one, uh, yeah, it, it felt irresponsible. It, they the director knows what he was doing. Um, he had done documentaries before, and he had clearly made Richard Ramirez his star of the show in, in the superstar kind of way. He was a little reckless with how he presented uh, the music and the glitz and glam of, of LA during that time. He would apply it across the board over footage of crime scenes, over footage of the, the killer in court later on. And it, it just felt like he was, he was actively working to make Richard Ramirez appear cool. And I felt like it was it was just it was an awful choice and uh, irresponsible of him because he should have. I, I've looked at his his biography. I've looked at his filmography. He should know better. I didn't see that one because I saw you tweeting about it, mm-hmm. and I had another couple of people who are also like I'm a true crime guy too, and uh, I had another couple of people tell me like essentially what you were saying mm-hmm. that it was like glamorizing and glorifying the whole thing, and I'm like I just. I know the Richard Ramirez story. I don't need another yeah. version of it that's doing it in this way specifically. So, you know, I'm just going to skip that one. Yeah, it's, right. it's not uh, it's not that great. And it's it's it could have been a really good sobering account of one of the most frightening periods in recent California history, but it's it's gaudy. I just right. I, I don't like it. And and you know, you hear that all the time with people who generally don't like true crime. They they think it all like all of these documentaries glamorize the killer. Um and and I disagree. I, I've written a piece about this for for Birth Movies Death before. They they don't mm-hmm. always do that. Um, to me, the ma- the vast majority don't do that. But um, the ones that do, they absolutely deserve to be shamed until the filmmakers feel bad enough that they don't do that anymore. There was that Slender Man documentary on HBO mm. uh, a few years back about the two preteen girls that murdered their friend, like in an offering to the slender man and they wanted to go live in his mansion in the forest or some bullshit, you know, like, you know, really gnarly crime. And, uh, luckily the girl survived and the two perpetrators are safely locked away now. But when I wrote up the piece, like the, the article with the, uh, the trailer attached to it, uh, there was some line in there that I said something like, I'm really hyped to see this one or something like that, because as a true crime fan, that's how I'm looking at it. You know? This looks like a well-made documentary. It's got a weird pseudo supernatural angle to it. It's it's tying in internet meme mythology, which I found to be a a very interesting angle. I'm hyped for it in that way. Mm -hmm. But the way people took it was like, you're hyped to see a case about like a girl getting stabbed 40 times. It's like, no, that's not really what I meant. But that was my first real brush with having to choose your words very carefully when you... um, when you discuss uh, watching true crime, because a lot of people are very sensitive to it and just don't look at it the same way. I don't feel like I ever watch true crime at a remove. Like I'm aware that what I'm watching is some sort of documentary based on a real thing that happened. You know, I don't consider it like, you know, it's not a horror movie, but I can see why that would rub somebody the, the wrong way. What do you guys think about the author's responsibility in something like this? Cause I, I you know, I have a fairly, fairly cemented opinion uh on on all this if the idea is that like okay some say 
in the rage case with Stephen King. If the publisher against the author's wishes had decided we're going to pull this, I would be furious. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a line, but you know, very much like Stanley Kubrick, uh, you know, he pulled clockwork orange in the seventies when there was a series of copycat droogs going around London, beating the fuck out of people. And that him as the creative making that call. Like I have nothing but support for that. And the same thing with Stephen King, like he's not out there burning every copy of, of rage that exists. He just said, you know what? I'm not comfortable continuing to profit off of this. So it it will, it will be removed from any future publications of the Bachman books and, and whatnot. So in in my personal opinion on, on this is that he has every right to do that. And whether or not you, you know, agree with the stance that that is, you should be able to agree that that, that is his call to make. Absolutely. And well, if you don't agree with it, what is the argument exactly? Like, if the creator wants it pulled, the creator should be able to have it pulled. Yeah. Like, right. I, like I would love to hear the argument from someone that's like, no, God damn it. That needs to be available. Well, the creator said like, you know, he wanted to get that off the shelves just so it wouldn't, couldn't possibly, you know, maybe sort of work as to use his words, an accelerant to something like this. Like what is, what is the argument of the other side at that point? You know, well, the devil's advocate here, I think, is is you know, even though it's a completely different scenario, um, you know, it's the George Lucas Star Wars, you know, special edition argument is like, at what point does your creation belong to the people who, uh, you know, who loved it and made it a success? You know, it, it, at what point do you owe them that do or do you? Like, I guess the argument is you don't. But right. uh, having been on the other side of being pissed off at what he did to the special editions, you like, I, I can understand a little bit of the ownership that that fans feel, and it feels, you know, in a weird way, like a betrayal when you're not allowed to like the thing you like anymore. And I guess there's also an argument to be had about. Him pulling it inadvertently makes it so if you've ever said you enjoyed the story that you're enjoying something that that is dangerous and, and makes you kind of sick in the head for liking or something and that the author is telling you that it's not worth that way. I don't really believe that, but I can see that as a devil's advocate position on this. Hmm. It's worth noting that he's been a very vocal king has been a very vocal um, gun control proponent. And right. so it, it also makes sense that, I mean, even in his interview um, with Anthony Mason, I believe, uh, he explained his reasoning. You know, he didn't want the book to be an accelerant for for disturbed individuals to commit violence. Right. And and the few deaths that occurred in the copycat crime, uh, w- that was enough for him. And so he does that. And then he immediately proceeds to call out Wayne LaPierre of the NRA by name and says, yeah. you know, he could take a lesson on responsibility for that. He reads him. He reads right. him. And so, you know, it, it does make sense that he would want that to be pulled, to be consistent in his, to walk the walk and not just, you know, talk the talk, to be That's more consistent point. with his views across the board. Um, that I can understand. And while I don't think I would have pulled it if I were an author, he owes me nothing as a creator and he can do right. whatever he'd like to do with his work. Um, For sure. And, you know, that's that's a whole other conversation that we could have, to, uh, you know, on, on, on any show about fan ownership, something else that King has written about in another yeah. book. <laughs> so it's a very nuanced subject. And I do think that, as you said earlier, it's a, it's a case by case basis. Um, but in this case, he can he can do what he wants. I kind of feel like if like for the, the setting, the fact that this is a realistic setting and can mirror real world events extremely easily that that also plays into this a lot mm-hmm. it, it, whereas mm-hmm. like 
say if there was a dark tower fan that, you know, kind of went off the the deep end and said, you know what? Um, he loads up a couple of revolvers and just goes around, goes into a mall and shoots everything up screaming <laughs> that he's a gunslinger, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, that he's the descendant of Arthur Eld or whatever. And he's shooting everybody up. Do I, that's a wholly different scenario because it's such a clearly a fantasy world. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can clearly tell that, that, that wasn't, you know, it might have inspired this person in a weird way, but it's not the equivalent of the Joker script you were talking about, you know, where we're, where we live in a world where somebody dressed up as the Joker and fucking gunned down, you know, a, a movie theater or in the rage case, you know, where we do have troubled teens bringing guns to school and killing teachers and, and students. It's it's all a very complicated thing, but like you said, we, we, I think we've all fell in agreement on, um, you know, you kind of have to look at it at a case by case basis. And yeah. when you do it that way, you can, you can judge uh, a little bit uh, more clearly based on the scenario, based on the genre, based on the history of the person who did the crime, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he does take pains in the, in the book to make it realistic, to make the world lived in. He, he, goes right. full bore into that that small town feel and has a, a whole profile for every single character in the book. And and so there's no plausible deniability like there is with uh, something like The Dark Tower, where you could say, well, it wasn't meant to be realistic. And right. it, it really is in this book. I think I would pull it. I think I would have made the exact same choice. I'm yeah. curious, you know, Anya, you said you wouldn't pull it. And, you know, I'm absolutely not arguing that point. But I'm I'm curious what it would take for you to if you had written a book that kept popping up like this, would there be a point where you might consider pulling it? I think if it were more cases where someone had directly cited it as an influence and not just, you know, found a, a copy of the the Bachman right. books in, in their house. Because that that whole Marilyn Manson thing after Columbine really rubbed me the wrong way. Now he's canceled for his own different reasons today. Right. Um, but the censorship attempts that came of that uh, really rubbed me the wrong way and it stuck with me for years. And so there has to be, for me, there has to be multiple direct citations of the art in question uh, in order for me to, to, to be willing to pull it. Although I do sympathize with his discomfort with making money from it. That, that is a, a, a good point. Um, I would yeah. be uncomfortable with making money from it. I think he's kind of in the perfect position with this one in particular, since, you know, it one, it was a short pulpy novel, you know, barely longer than a novella anyway. Right. That was always part of a larger group. So him pulling it, it only took a little piece away from a larger collection. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he was in, the, I don't know if he would have had the same reaction if it was literally just those books going out individually. Cause I think the only time that rage was ever printed individually was under the Bachman name. Right. In, in the, the paperback right. when nobody right. knew. Oh, yeah. That he was Stephen King. Do you think that King would have pulled it in, in the same way if it was, like, say, considerably longer, and if it was in the a printing and reprinting vein of like a dark half or something, where they just keep releasing it individually in different kind of paperbacks? Like, uh, you know, I think that that changes things a little bit, it, was, or at least makes it a tougher decision for him to just say this isn't going in print anymore versus mm-hmm. it just being a part of a a longer collection. Well, I was thinking about. Uh, something along those lines a moment ago in that rage. I don't think rage is a very good book um, or novella. <laughs> it's 200 pages, whatever it is. Uh, it's not one of my favorites. I think I've read it once or twice. My reaction is just kind of shrugging my shoulders at it. You know, right. I don't feel like it's saying as much in the same way that say at pupil is, 
right? Right. There's more, there's more meat on those bones to at people. There's, there's things being said about generational trauma and inherited influence. Yeah. yeah. And yes, exactly. And I don't feel like rage has that. I feel like it's kind of a, it's not, not a throwaway thing. Obviously it's a powerful piece of work or, or we wouldn't be having this discussion to get back to what I was thinking a moment ago. I was thinking, what if this was the shining though? Mm. Or The Stand, like a book that had sold way, 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 way more many copies and was, in fact, a bit of a, a horror institution. You know, how how that might change my opinion of it. And I, I don't have an answer for that. Mm. I think that I would, mean, I think to what you're saying, I think it would definitely complicate the issue. What are you well, going to like? Imagine we if they were like, we're going to pull all the copies of The Stand. Like, no, you're not. Right. They're in fucking yeah. every household in America. Like, almost everyone's right. got a copy of The Stand sitting around somewhere. Right. That they well, never well, finished. There is a literary equivalent to that already. There's, I mean, that's Catcher in the Rye, right? Sure. Yeah. That, that, that book has been tied to so many real life killings and, and, uh, and it's still in, in print because it is, whether you agree with it or not, it is a legit literary classic. You're, you're right. If it was The Shining, then it never, I don't think King would, would have ever pulled it. I mean, maybe temporarily, mm. maybe after the last, you know, incident, he, he might have put a pause on it, but it wouldn't have been the same thing. I, I have no question in my mind. Yeah. Maybe he would have figured out like a workaround, like all proceeds from, you know, from, from book sales of this particular book would go towards this organization against gun violence right, or sure. something like that. Maybe, maybe he could work it around that way. But yeah, yeah I, I do agree. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that he'd be able to even if he wanted to, if the book was at the level of The Stand or The Shining. Is there another King title? I'm trying to think. Is I mean, since you brought up that pupil, you know, I seem to remember, you know, forgetting the Brian Singer bullshit aside, like just from a novel standpoint, I seem to remember that there was that at pupil was kind of tied in with another one of these kind of things. Um, maybe I'm uh, pulling that out of my ass, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to think. What of, do you mean? Like King- there was another controversial Title? Yeah, where somebody had, you know, some somebody did something and cited that pupil as, as as an inspiration or something. Is there another King title that you can think of? Because he's dealt with so much. Maybe Roadwork. You might be thinking of that, but I don't mm-hmm. recall any big brouhaha over that one. I don't personally have a lot of use for stories about angry young men who just do <laughs> shitty things because they're mad at the world. Right. You know, I grew up an angry young man. I'm still fucking pissed at the world. I find... Every mass shooter, every every time a terrible thing happens and it turns out it's some 19-year-old clown with a gun, I don't feel any empathy for them and I don't feel like um, I'm not interested in knowing their interior lives. I'm just not. Which, to go back to Catcher in the, in the Rye, um, I'm not a big fan of that novel either. Like, I understand its place in the, the pantheon of American literature. You know, there's no denying that. But... I read that in I read that in school and I didn't like it. And then when I got a little older, I was like, I'm going to go back and reread that because I think maybe I was just hard on it at the time because I was being forced to read it. And then I read it again. I was like, no, I just don't like this book. <laughs> I don't like this guy. I don't want to fucking spend any time with him. I don't really find any of this terribly compelling. I don't know where I'm going with this point. Hmm. <laughs> um, right. I'm I'm running on fumes. Well, I'm with this, you. But no, I, uh, I'm with you. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's low on my my favorites of of the genres. The angry, angry, uh, disturbed white guy. Yeah, um, fucking doofuses. But, but I, yeah, I have, a, I have a question for Anya. Um, you have, I mean, you have children now that are yes. this age, and they're living in this world where going to school is dangerous for them. 
Absolutely. Right? Um, would you feel comfortable having your, especially your oldest, your teenager, mm-hmm. reading the story? Do you, I mean, obviously he seems very well adjusted. He, you know, he knows the behind the scenes of horror movies. So he knows to look beyond just what's on the page. Do you think that you would be comfortable with him or like his, his peers reading this story? I would be comfortable with him reading the story only if we would have a very long chat afterward. Right. <laughs> about, right. And that's, you know, that's a crucial involved. difference. I think that if he wants um, a good story by Stephen King that explores uh, masculinity and boyhood uh, and, and the transition to manhood and love and all of those things, he could read Christine. That, that would <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, or, or the body, the body for, or for the that. body. I, mean, I, it, I feel like yeah. this, this book, it's very clearly early King and it's an amalgamation of many ideas that he explored better, more thoroughly later on in individual books like Carrie, like Christine, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and this feels like the first draft for several other stories. If I wanted him to learn the things that, that I think King is doing well here, I would have him read Christine instead. Good answer. Yeah. I feel like that, that, that works. Yeah. I mean, Rage feels like a book that would have been written by a teenager. And it was. I don't know. That's the kind of shit I would write as a teenager. (laughs) Fucking dark poetry or fucking, you know, (laughs) short stories with like, you know, that really have no point. You're just like trying to be really edgy and shit like that. It feels like the product of a teenager. Yeah, um, there was there was a point in the book very early on where I I got the the Holden Caulfield f- vibe from from Charlie. This everybody's phony. I'm the only one who's really keyed into what's really going on. You know that yeah. kind of thing. And it was it was what turned me off of the book when I was in high school. I didn't like it, and I still don't like it really. You, you get a lot of that here, and there is a groove that I that I got into with with the the story, and I got used to Charlie's very prosaic uh, anecdotes and. I was okay with that after a certain point in the book, but it is, it does feel like it's written by a, by a teenage boy, you know, who's, who's right. trying to make sense of his angst and, and put it out into the world. I definitely get that feeling. I get that angry young Stephen King feeling, which is most mm-hmm. of the Bachman stories. Yeah. Um, for sure. Running man. You can feel that and run every page of running man as well. Um, but I think that there's also, and just again from an academic standpoint, there's also an interesting angle to this in that you can also see him like maybe for the first time really playing around with that gray area where he's really trying to make Charlie understandable, right? And without hiding the fact that what he's done is monstrous. And he does that by doing that whole Lord of the Flies clicky mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. you know, and seeing that cult of personality, which I, I've mentioned before. You know, to, to me, again, on an academic level, it's very interesting to watch King playing around in something that would become muscle memory for him a little bit yeah. later as a writer of, of finding the complexities and the heroes and the darkness and heroes and the the lightness and villains. Right. You know, so just again, from an academic standpoint, it's very interesting. I agree completely with Scott from a writing standpoint. King hadn't really found his his voice yet. And uh, it's not one of his stronger early stories. So is there anything we w- else we want to talk about with this one? Oh, there's a whole lot, I guess. Uh, I, I feel like it's it's an interesting microcosm of the teenage wasteland, uh, not mm. unlike you know Carrie or Christine. It's it's not only the emotional social labyrinths that that high schoolers are left to navigate on their own, but also their tenuous relationship with adults. And this is mostly with adults, and not so. Th- there is there, there's a lot of tension between each other. There's actually like a, an actual slap fight between two girls in the class, but there's also a lot of reckoning with 
these these teenagers reckoning with the way that they thought the world was going to be and the way that the people that were supposed to support them have turned out to be. Mm-hmm. And and that's a really hard thing to deal with as a teenager, um, you know, learning that there are that's bad universal. guys out there. That yeah, yeah, it's a tough thing. And I, I thought this was an interesting way to to go about it. I, I think he said, I think that King said something about Blackboard Jungle and and Rebel Without a Cause and and all of those kinds of films as as something he enjoyed in um, Dance Macabre. When yeah. you know, the the juvenile delinquent craze. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He he goes more in, in depth on on stuff like uh, I was a teenage werewolf, but he also <laughs> you know goes into uh, you know the James Dean kind of uh, kind of movies, and yeah, just he manages to dissect and explore the mind of a school shooter. I'm not sure if he's a mass shooter because there were only two deaths, right? I think he's I think he's only a mass shooter if it's like more than three. That's true. Yeah. So I, I guess school shooter um, without ever really making it seem like it's the fault of a woman for rejecting him or some kind of nonsense. Mm. A lot of his stuff has to do with his father. Um, yeah, of course. In, in the yeah, book. His, his father. Well, I mean, King's father uh, in his personal life, like mm-hmm. abandoned the family. So you see a lot of daddy issues with, with King's stuff. And as somebody who my biological father left my mom when I was six weeks old and I was mostly raised by a single mom uh, until I was about 10, then she remarried. But, um, you know, I, maybe that's part of the reason why I related so hardcore to King's stuff when I read him at an early age, because I started reading King in sixth grade, you know, all that stuff's definitely in there and you can feel that in this one as well. Charlie's account of the incident in the story where he bludgeons his teacher with a pipe wrench. It's interesting because Charlie really never shows any kind of hatred or fear of women in that when he talks about how he was spurred to violence in that anecdote. Mm. His fascination with women seems to be more like a curiosity and a confusion than anything else. He does shoot, the first person he shoots is a woman, it's Miss Underwood. Um, but mm. that's more because she's the adult in the room, you know, not not because right. of her womanhood. And, and and later he calls it misplaced aggression that was meant for his father. And the students that do display some kind of hatred towards a woman or women are Irma, you know, the, the big girl um, right. who slut shames the other young woman whose mother was known as promiscuous. And then there's there was Ted, good old Ted, whose repression and denial it doesn't help him by the end of the story. He spits in the face of another girl and and he calls her a slut. He tries to slut shame her and, and he's the only one who's really doing that. And he's clearly the case in the book that is is meant to be almost like the cautionary tale. Like like all of us, all of us kids are letting everything out breakfast club style and, and you not doing that is making you the monster, Ted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fucking Ted. Yeah. <laughs> even then, at the very end, you know, it, it's clear that Charlie is still disturbed and he's still not well. I'm not sure yeah. that King did a strong enough job of of making that clear, though. I'm, 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 I'm I not agree sure. with that. Yeah. But yeah, to, to me, you, we're just touching upon the the reason to read Rage. If you have the inkling to do it, and and it is just in that microcosm that he would explore, and like the mists, you know, where it's all mm-hmm. these people trapped in one area. You know, and, and you start seeing not only cliques form, but you see, you know, the the tensions between people and how that like makes fast friends, fast enemies. And it really is a prototype. It's a dry run for stuff he would be stronger at later and be a little bit more clear with later. But that is where the excitement in 
the story lies. It's all it's all in that stuff. It's not in Charlie's interior monologue and you know his woe is me. You know mm-hmm. I'm I'm an edgy, <laughs> dark, troubled teen. You know feel sorry for me. That's a good point, and that's a fair point. And you're right. It is that the group dynamic element of it that is very prevalent in the mist is is definitely in here. I guess I just don't have a, a lot of use for this one. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I wish I wish I felt more passionately about it one way or another, because then I feel like I could probably mount a, you know, I would have a more passionate thing to say about it. <laughs> but I I kind of feel like I, I agree with King pulling it. I agree with his politics and uh, I don't really like it, so I don't really care. You know, so it, it puts me <laughs> in a weird position where I don't have a strong opinion. You know, it's an odd one. Whereas you'd be uh, in the streets picketing uh, King's house if he was pulling the stand. <laughs> because somebody somebody uh fucking ripped off the kid or something from the extended edition of the scene. <laughs> yeah. I'd be very surprised if he did that. That would just seem like a really bad business decision at that point. <laughs> right. But I mean, then again, how many you know, in this scenario, how many people are imitating the kid? If four or five of them popped up, you know, in the space like, of a what? decade, I might be like, huh. So it might be something we need to look at. But yeah. then again, that also kind of brings us back to or brings us to, you know, uh, mental health stigma. The fact that people right. are not getting the help that they they need or are, aren't willing to seek it out. I was dealing with like anxiety and depression before all this COVID shit happened. It's just been a part of my personality, you know, and quarantine accelerated it to a degree you know, along with all the other terrible shit that happened in the last year, you know, not just being cooped up, but also, you know, losing a job a couple of times, fucking all the horror on the news, like the country sometimes literally burning, you know, it accelerated, well, decelerated my mental health, I guess, you know, to a point where I was like, I got to do something about this because I don't feel like on firm ground anymore. And I couldn't sleep and it was nightmarish. And I finally went out and got on fucking antidepressants and anti-anxiety uh, pills. My concerns with that, with doing that, were always like, well, I don't want to take anything that might take the edge out of my writing voice mm. because I had a very specific writing voice that brought a good amount of traffic to the website I was running. Mm-hmm. Pays the bills. And, and I, yeah, I, and I was worried like, well, if I take a happy pill, is that going to cut back on the cynicism? Is it going to, is it going to alter me in a way that I won't be me anymore? Like, how is that going to affect my ability to craft jokes? Writing a joke is one part like cynicism and one part empathy to me. Mm -hmm. So this was a very real concern and it could have impacted my career, but lost that job. So it was like, (laughs) I'm out of excuses. And I didn't think it would affect me in such a way that it would impact this show or doing this show. And my life is so much fucking better for this. I could have done this 10 years ago and probably, I mean, who knows how things would have turned out then. But uh, this was something I should have done for myself a long time ago. So I'm a big proponent of like, get out there and get the fucking help you need. It might be embarrassing or it might be like, you don't want to do it. You don't want to go to a doctor and have him poking around in your fucking head. And Harley didn't. (laughs) Yeah. And look where he ended up, you know, (laughs) but In a situation where, like, you know, as you were saying, like the stand being pulled from shelves and there were copycat kids, you know, running around, part of my attention would also be diverted to what is causing this? 
-hmm. You know, there's, Mm -hmm. there's a bigger issue here than people just reading the stand. And I, I think that just travels across the board and it all comes down to how we, how we deal with mental health in this country. But to that point, um, blaming art for real life violence is a bipartisan issue. Mm-hmm. You know, you you'll, you see the very liberal and you see the very conservative, the, you know, wanting to pivot away from the harder discussion of mental illness in situations like this because they can point at Call of Duty mm-hmm. or they can, mm-hmm. you know, point at, uh, well, it, well, well, funnily enough, I don't think that they're doing Call of Duty a lot because that's, uh, turns out that's a big army recruitment thing that uh, there's there's I, I read a thing that was saying that there was like uh, stats were showing that kids growing up playing call of duty a lot you know puts them in a, a more likelihood of, of wanting to sign up for the the real army so but uh but most violent video games don't get don't get used as army recruitment vehicles so mm-hmm. the republicans don't like those ones um i think a good place to end this conversation on is do you think that by king pulling this title that he has given it more life than it would have if, if he had just kind of let it all blow over? Or do you think that him pulling the title stopped three or four more, you know, school shootings that, that could have been in, quote unquote inspired by this? Because I, I have a feeling that him pulling the title makes it an instant curiosity for anybody who's even remotely interested in King. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, you know, we had a whole, uh, it was about a half decade of this with the video nasties craze where where right. things were pulled from uh, video stores there were raids on video stores and people were were prosecuted um and and stuff went on their you know their permanent record uh for for distributing these tapes that that Mary Whitehouse and the the NBA NBLA uh deemed to be uh filthy and you know not for children not that these movies were meant for children anyway we're talking about driller killer here All right um, but like you said, on the left and the right, we repeat the same talking points with censorship. We just apply it to different movies with different ideologies. That's mm-hmm. all it is. You will see people on the when when Joker was about to come out, there was a lot of people on the left saying the same exact things that Tipper Gore would have said about gangster rap. Same exact things, sight unseen, having not seen Joker movie yet. Um, and, and I'm not talking about people who had read that script. People who just already didn't like the idea of another Joker movie or saw the trailer and decided. This is going to be uh, uh, incel porn. Right. I'm not sure whether or not it would have prevented more crimes, but there is something to the idea of restricting access to something, to some kind of art and instantly creating more of a curiosity for it because there are entire books and and documentaries and podcasts and and my own column, I, I wrote a column in the past about the video nasties that became famous mostly because they were banned. A lot of these movies, I've been going through them one by one. A lot of these movies aren't great. A lot of them (laughs) suck. A lot of them are trash movies. Mardi Gras Massacre blows. It's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think it would have made a single blip on anybody's radar had it not been on the Video Nasties list. And so, yeah, I do think that Rage might not have been as popular um, Mm -hmm. or as searched out as as it is now had it not been pulled. But uh, on the other hand, it's still unfortunately relevant today. And so it's possible that it would have shown up in think pieces anyway. Right. Um, yes. Especially in the horror community. They you know, people would have dug this up and and written essays about it anyway, I I I believe. And there's plenty of opportunities for us to do so because we have several shootings a month 
I will say there is one thing that this book has influenced me to do, and it's not violent. Uh, Charlie describes the last time that he was truly happy was when he got stoned with his friends. And <laughs> I too would like to smoke a little herb and listen to bluegrass all afternoon. That sounds delightful. <laughs> and I'm definitely going to do that one day. <laughs> that's that's what I'm taking from this book. So if, if Why not start that's today, what he has influenced Anya. me to do. I know, right? I mean, <laughs> it's Friday. I got some edibles on hand. I, I might do it. You're in California, right? <laughs> we are. Yeah, you we motherfuckers are. got those edibles all over the place down there. We do. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Just sitting awesome. here perpetually outside the gates of Willy Wonka's edible factory. <laughs> And it's great. I was, you know, a, a couple months ago, I went to go buy like a stash box for all my stuff because I had enough, you know, tools and edibles and, and accessories that I needed a box because I have kids. And obviously, you know, you don't want them to find that stuff. And I was running out of places to hide my stuff. So I went to go look for a box online and a lot of them were advertising that they were discreet. And I thought it was hilarious because I was like, you know, that's not something I have to really worry about anymore. I could put my box out in public. It, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, you know, all that matters to we me is that have I can to put a lock on it. We don't have to disguise it as a lamp or something. Right. <laughs> I don't have to do any of that. I can just yeah. put a lock on it and keep my kids from accessing it and put it up high. And then I'm good to go. And it can it can be, I can even, my oldest even knows that uh, that I, you know, that I smoke weed sometimes. And he knows where the box is, but he knows he can't get to it. And I've seen him looking <laughs> too. So, you know, <laughs> you got to be real careful with that stuff. But yeah, you, you know, it's, it's kind of cool living in California, you know, not occasionally, California can be cool. And this is one of the times where it can be cool, where I don't have to have a medical card. <laughs> I don't have to look for something discreet. Well, I wish that for us down here. <laughs> I wish it, it for one day. you guys too. And I'll listen to Bluegrass. <laughs> uh, this is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to tease whatever they've got coming up next. Um, what are you doing these days? What do, what do you got going on? In the I've got a, a column at Fangoria Magazine where I explore horror movies from a gendered perspective, which is increasingly becoming irrelevant as uh, as I'm, I'm figuring out that you can't really write about things from binary perspectives anymore because turns out things aren't binary. Yep. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to have to come up with some, some, some outside the box ideas here. But every few months, Fangoria comes out with a new print issue. And so my work is guaranteed to be in there, a column called Rated XXXY. Another title that's increasingly becoming irrelevant. Phil, if you're <laughs> listening to this, don't listen he, to that. I'm very relevant and you should keep hiring me. <laughs> He's not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, that's where you can find my work every few months on Fangoria Magazine. Right on, man. Thank you so much for, for being here today and uh, having this talk with us. We knew we had to do it sooner or later. And this was, I think this was about as, as best as we could have hoped for. So uh, I appreciate you being here and going through this. It's not a terribly fun topic, not a real uh, raucous episode, but um, it's important that we explore all these these nooks and crannies in King's history. So I'm glad yeah, you were I here. For and it. I, I feel like we uh, we did a fairly good job. I'd be I was riveted listening. So hopefully uh, the uh, all of our other listeners are interested in the conversation as well. Indeed, yeah, exactly. And thank you for having me. And and for King Completus, this is this is good to take a look at. Um, yes, just have on your radar, and uh, it's it's interesting, if nothing else, from the perspective of seeing his trajectory as a writer and seeing his right. craft grow and seeing him get better and better at exploring the things that he was exploring here. Definitely agree with that. Many thanks to Anya for joining us for what was always going to be a little bit of a loaded title. 
a little, little bit, bit doing a lot loaded. of carry, carrying there, but uh, but it's one that you can't really talk about King's overall work and not address. You know, it's a, it's a very unique title in his oeuvre. And yeah, no, mm-hmm. I think she she did a great job. And and uh, right. you know, it was it's I actually really like having those kind of. I mean, you know, we went off the rails a little bit every once in a while, as we always do. But you know, I do like the swings that the show takes from time to time. That'll go from uber goofy and baseball noises and and uh and then you know into some serious topics like uh, yeah for sure sometimes you know you're gonna tune in we're gonna depress the the ever-loving shit out of you that's that's just how this show goes but (laughs) i'll tell you what we got some fun shit on the horizon do we not oh yeah oh yeah so i we're gonna give you guys a little bit of whiplash here between this week and next week uh, next Wednesday, our title is Creep Show Two. Oh boy, oh boy! We've covered the raft before, but we haven't covered the actual movie. Really, it came from. So we talk in depth, and when I say in depth, I'm not kidding you. This is perhaps the longest uh, Kingcast episode that will have hit the uh, the feed when uh, yeah, all is done. I, I don't ever want to do this episode again. Uh, I have nothing left to say about this particular title after this particular episode yeah when we did uh, the first creep show thing it felt like right we were moving along on it but uh this one like we get into the nitty-gritty we treat each segment almost as if it's its own movie and we you know we spend quite a lot of time in there and we do it with a guest who is an established horror filmmaker genre filmmaker not just horror but notably horror in mm-hmm. genre leaning for sure and uh, just an all-around good chat, super enthusiastic, uh, huge fan of the movie, and we we talk uh, some sense in him on a couple of different things. I think uh, during during the episode, but yeah. uh, you know, but <laughs> I do love true. his unbridled passion about it. Yeah, this episode took two tries to get through because it was so long. I'll tell you a funny story right now, and Eric, you may cut this, but it's still a funny story. Is uh, our guest. Uh, when we came back for the second portion of this recording, it was only supposed to be about 20 minutes or so. Let's wrap this up. You know, we already went on too long. We all agreed on that. And we had this conversation beforehand. And then we got on the line and uh, I introduced the third segment of this movie, said, what do you think? And uh, he went on for 15 uninterrupted minutes uh, <laughs> talking about about that segment so that portion of the recording lasted uh about another hour oh more than that yeah there that last section and the end of the wraparound ended up taking its own full episode length worth to get through (laughs) and i don't and it's all good i don't know what to cut so i think you guys might just be looking forward to a very long episode next week yeah you're looking at the first and last creep show two episode that will ever air on this show if if we have to do this motherfucker again i will be i, I will be very mad about it because i have nothing <laughs> left to say well what's happening on our patreon this friday then scott this friday we're we're doing another mailbag episode um uh, our listeners have been sending in their questions some of them very good if you have a, a unique question to send in you can email us at uh eric what's the uh What's the Gmail account? You never remember our email address. It's a the kingcast19 at gmail.com. No. So 
No. I don't remember what I did this morning. What do you mean <laughs> I don't remember the email address? I thought you address. said no. Of course that, not. that wasn't the email address. That is the email address if you're listening. The KingCast19 oh, no, that Gmail. That, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, but also, like, my brain is, is smooth like an egg. You I, mm-hmm. you know, I keep saying this. You, you, you all have to understand that. But, yeah, uh, we're going to answer your questions. If you have questions to uh, send in. Please do so now. We're going to answer them on the show this Friday on the uh, the good old KingCast Patreon. Yep. Those and, are always uh, a good time. It's yeah, just no, you the, and the, me going, yeah. you know, going back and forth, playing a little uh, a little tummy sticks with the questions. Love it. Tummy sticks. That's going to get us so many more questions. What are tummy sticks? Oh, you know about <laughs> tummy sticks. Don't worry I know about that. I- <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, we love we love uh, doing this part of it. This is uh, where you can ask us anything you want. You can ask us about Stephen King stuff, about other pop culture stuff, about how the podcast is made. Uh, you can try to get some hints at what's coming down the line if you want. Can't guarantee mm-hmm. we'll give things away, but you know we're known to from time to time give little hints about what's uh, coming up, and we have some really exciting things coming up. So we do indeed. Uh, so feel free to drop us a line and uh, maybe we'll read your question. And uh, to listen to that episode, all you got to do is be a Patreon subscriber. And to do that, you can go to patreon.com slash the KingCast and sign up for a low monthly fee. And it really helps. And you know what else really helps? When you leave five-star reviews at iTunes. We love those. Or if you can't be asked to do that, uh, you know, share the show. Send it to people who you think would dig it. Always no. like that word of mouth. No. Five-star reviews. Go leave them. Apple iTunes right now. How about both? We're, can we agree on both? Sharing we can agree and five-starring. On both. We can agree okay. on both. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week for uh, a, a ridiculously long Creepshow 2 episode. And uh, then this Friday, we'll have the mailbag on the Patreon. Adios, everyone. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>